Hello and welcome to Golden Grenades, a podcast about birds with stories from those of us who worship them, all set against the heartwarming backdrop of the end of the world. You know the drill by now. I get a guest on the podcast, they talk about their five favourite birds, and it's essentially desert island discs, isn't it? But this is an episode with a difference. This time, I'm not just inviting one guest on to talk about the five favourite birds. Effectively, for this episode, we're on location. And I've bought myself a roaming mic, I've mounted it to a stick, so I look like Terry Wogan in Blankety Blank, or Les Dawson, depending on you how old you are. And, yeah, I've picked five birds that I'm going to roam the countryside to track down and meet people on the way. And joining me on this quest is my buddy and yours, Will Rose. Hey, Will. Hello. And as you can hear, we've got a lovely setting here. We're right on the cliff top. We've got the waves coming in. We've just seen a red-throated diver. There's razorbills, puffins, gannets. And that's just us sitting here, maybe having a beer. But over to you, Les. <laughs> yeah, we may or may not be having a beer. We are definitely having a beer. Yeah. So yeah, the, the plan is we're just going to bimble around Northumberland. We're going to meet some local birders to talk about iconic species of this amazing county that I call home. And I'm taking Will along the, for the ride. And I'm on a bit of a quest because I have to be honest, there's a couple of birds I haven't ever seen before. Never seen a nightjar. I've seen a nighthawk in the, in the States, but never seen a, a UK nightjar. And it's the right time of year. So we're hoping to get lucky there. And if we get even luckier, we may be on a going on a little quest and we might find a ring oozel, another bird that's not on my list and I would like to get it on there. Yeah, well, that's the plan. Let's, let's see how it goes. So we've got trips into deepest, darkest Northumberland planned to try and track down Will's very first night jar. That should be exciting if it all goes to plan. And then over the course of the weekend, we are going to be heading up the coast. We're going to be heading inland. We're going to be seeing some iconic species. And, yeah, we're just going to wing it and see how it goes. Yeah, join us and let's see who we meet. We could meet a few randoms too. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Anything could happen. Bird number one. So, here we are in a top-secret Northumberland location. Waiting for hopefully some night jars. Will's very excited, aren't you, Will? I have never seen a night jar before. Maybe this is the night. So far, not a lot to see apart from two men with nets on the head that stink of citronella. But actually, that seems to be working, I don't know. I yeah, don't I think they've yeah. cleared off a bit. Yeah. This yeah, sounds like a raven. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, patiently waiting for any sign of movement. The night is still young. We don't know if this little microphone can pick this up, but Will's just heard his first night jar. I can hear it cheering away. It's cheering like a gun.
So we've just had a night job fly past. Oh my god. I did a lot of swearing, but I'm gonna clean up my act. <laughs> Flipping heck, that was right over our heads. First night job. Buzzing. We seem to have stumbled upon Night Jar Central, which is. How, how many do you think we got here, Kit? I don't know. I mean, I think I can hear at least four. They seem to be coming from all directions, unless there's a bit of an echo going on. But and then the other thing is this sort of squeaky call. You think it could be owl-based? I think. I think it's a young, long-eared owl. If it's, if I'm right, but I haven't heard it for a few minutes now. I saw it's white on the wings. Did you? Yeah. I'd like to see this area from above. I bet they're all sitting. <laughs> I bet they're all hanging out just behind these trees. Just gone. Are those two dudes with the nets on their head still there? <laughs> I like the nets. <laughs> I think it's a 2023 look. Should we just wear them tomorrow to go and see the kitty wakes? over there. I've got a long-eared owl in there. Got night jaws all around. I've only seen them a couple of times though, but they're about. You can hear like flaps. Yeah, wing flaps. Do you hear them? Yeah. decided to call in a night. We're walking back to the car and we've just had two night jars over our heads. Again, <laughs> Joel just alongside us. And they're starting calling again. And they've started up again and now we don't want to leave. I tell you what, it's still quite light there. Yeah, we'll yeah. Another, we'll, we'll give it another, another five minutes. Yeah, go on then. Bird number two. two. Right then, here we are in Newcastle, in the heart of Newcastle, under the Tyne Bridge. Will and I have come to see the famous Tyne Kittywakes, and we are here today with Heather Devey and Kane Scrimger, who are the founders and co-directors of a wonderful social enterprise called Wild Intrigue. Welcome, guys. Hello. Hi. Hello. Welcome under, under the Tyne Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> lovely spot, and we're so close to these kittywakes and we've been enjoying them for a few minutes anyway but listen to this yeah so tell us about the time kittywakes oh. you guys have been connected to the kittywakes for a few years now yes yeah, so i started in sort of 2010 because there was a big massive spread on the newspaper saying um should this year should they go and like oh, really? get rid of them yeah and it essentially it was the vermont hotel didn't want kittywakes down this end um, so I wanted a net, the Time Bridge, and I was doing sort of media studies then and thinking, why do people want to remove this colony and what was, why was there so much like anti about them? 
So, so I made a film to discover it and met Dr. John Coulson, who's like the Kitty Wake OG. And he discovered them in 1950. He was going to a cricket game on the North Shields, South Shields Ferry. Right. And he, he seen a colony on the North Shields Ferry land. And he sort of went away and done loads and loads of studies on them, ringing data. Um, so he's the original Kitty Wake OG. And then since then, they've spread and moved up the time to where we are now, which is just about the furthest inland colony. You can just see the furthest inland ones just <laughs> behind us over there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's fascinating because they don't really know why they initially came inland, so they've probably come from the Marsden colony. But the reason they've come this far up is because they've hopscotch through our industrial past. So they nested at North Shields at the ferry landing, and then they would nest on old industrial buildings. And either they were demolished or turned into something new, and that will push the kitty wakes on. Yeah. So as our industries changed on the time, the kitty wakes have found themselves being pushed further and further inland, and then they've stayed. Yeah, they're steeped in our heritage, aren't they? At the end of the day, we've just forgotten that side of our heritage, so we've forgotten that they were part of it as well. But it's nice that they are still part of the cityscape, really. Like it's it's just absolutely precious. Like look at that, the world's most inland breeding colony, right? Right there. Yeah. Literally right there. It's- it's actually crazy to think that they hold that status. It's a jewel in the crown of the, the northeast, isn't it, really? And I think, I don't know, do you feel that attitudes have changed towards them over the years? I, I think they are. I think so, because obviously they're on the Tyne Bridge here, which is a symbol of our kind of Geordie pride, obviously. And the bridge is up for kind of renewal. But the Kitty Wakes, we've realised, have become part of our Geordie pride as well. Yeah. So alongside the bridge repairs, they're actually um, kind of campaigning to, to keep the Kitty Wakes here, which is just, it's quite niche, that, isn't it? You wouldn't really see that in a lot of other cities or towns. No, because I think from the council perspective, 10 years ago, when if they had to repaint the Tyne Bridge, they'd say, right, we're taking the Kitty Wakes off. Yeah. But now it's every interview you see with Alistair, the engineer, it's like, no, the kitty wakes are staying. We just might need to mitigate them for during some of the process. Yeah. So I think that mentality as an organisational one has changed. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But it's like Brilliant. people, thousands of people go to the Farn Islands every year to get this experience. And in Newcastle, you can just come down the quayside yeah. and get the same thing, can't you? And you can grab a beer. Or a donut, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you guys have been doing your mini expeds, haven't you? Bringing people in, showing them the time Kitty Wakes. Kitty Wakes and Donuts you do, and tell us about your other your so, other trips. Kitty Wakes and Donuts is with uh, Daniel Turner, who is another Kitty Wake OG. He's been surveying the Kitty Wakes along the time since 1994. So we're, we're like, absolutely chuffed to work with him, and then a lush little artisan donut company down the road. It's really fascinating, because we do get tourists on it, but we get a lot of local people. Yeah. yeah. And they've passed the Kitty Wakes like, every day. They've commuted to work past them, and they've just seen them as a gull or a seagull. Um, and then they don't know anything about the ecology or that they spend the entire winters at sea. Because we, we kind of try and level up everything we do. So we've got the Kitty Wakes and Donuts, and then the profits are donated, if you get it. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to do that without it written down. Yes. Donated back in uh, kind of our engagement around the Kitty Wakes yeah. along the Tyne. Yeah. Because that, cause obviously the conservation of them physically is needed, but for, for us, a lot of the conservation that's needed is actually in people's minds um, to kind of rewild the thinking about what the city can be. So we put our profits back into Time Kitty Work Week. So we've got one coming up um, at the end of this month in June. Um, and that's just a celebration of the fact that we've got these amazing seabirds that go out and spend their winters out at sea alongside polar bears and 
all sorts of other creatures and then they come back and they bring that wild call into the heart of the city um, so it's a bit of an exhibition isn't it some talks and things and celebrate the people involved as well because you've got yeah. Dan Turner who does the service for the entire time every year on a voluntary basis and collects all this m- mental data the Tank Kitty Wig partnership but then you've got Andy Rickard who does the the ring in at the Salt Meadows Tower and yeah. fascinating data suburbs yeah. like 23 years old and breeding in France and and then Peter Shield from Gated and all these people who are sort of Kittywake warriors, but because the message is not wide enough yet, they don't get celebrated enough. Oh, it's a, yeah, it's our chance to celebrate them. Yeah, it's fantastic. And it, I mean, there are so many people around who have dedicated so much time and years and years and years to specific species. Yeah. But in terms of you reaching the audience, I'm going to ask you about your sort of team up with Hector Gannett, our friend Aaron Duff, who yeah. goes by Hector Gannett and has a fairly recent album out, Everybody, This Land Belongs to Us. And he's been on the podcast as well, but tell us about your connection with him. Yeah, Hector Gannett have been brilliant. First did a Tyne Kittywick send-off gig. So when they're leaving, they're heading down there, based at North Shields. So we had a send-off gig to celebrate the season and sort of say goodbye for the winter. Yeah. And we'll see you in the spring, didn't we? And that money was raised, they helped us raise money for the first time, Kittywick, which, which was amazing. I think it was like 800 quid or something they ended up raising. Because they, they did an entire gig voluntarily for that literally for the kitty works yeah. like how often do you combine rock and seabirds <laughs> it turned into sort of a, like a really good relationship doing that that yeah. they really love nature like just so willing to support aren't they so we've got a little kitty wig pin badges and got it on like, yeah and, and they've Definitely. got a really loyal following haven't they so every time you go they're like they recognize us as the kitty wig people now and uh, tell us about your your gig with them at the sage yeah, so they just did a uh, sellout gig at the Sage, and it was absolutely rammed, wasn't it? Was it was 450 people, apparently. Yeah, and they had this amazing set with like archive footage from the fishing history that had some of Aaron's relatives in. And yeah. then in between that and the main set, they let us do a tank it away talk, which Heather sacrificed me to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wasn't standing up there, not a chance. All those bright lights. Yeah, <laughs> but it was brilliant, like... Everybody thought the audience was going to spill out and I got up there and they were just stood stock still looking because I think some of them knew about the kitty wigs. But I started and somebody heckled, they ate my chips last week. And I thought, like, that's going to be the best heckle ever. Because I was like, not these ones, mate. And everybody laughed and he was like, oh. <laughs> but it's that. Put him in his box. Exactly. <laughs> but I think there's a lot to relate to because we're on a time bridge, which is an iconic feature. We're very... We've got prides in the northeast, and that people can relate to that and the hardships that these birds face. So, it's not you can talk about them in the context of our northeast heritage and culture, which people seem to love. Well, I don't think even Aaron kind of realised that, to be honest, because his band Hector Gannett is named after his granddad's fishing boat. And I said to him, you know, you're continuing your granddad's heritage through your songwriting and through through working with the Kitty Works. He's like. Maybe I am. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it is just so deep in him that he doesn't even, you know, think about it. He just knows it's the right thing to do. I did say to him when I had him on the podcast that he, it was lucky his granddad's boat was called Hector Gannett and not like Timothy Chaffinch. Yeah, yeah. 100%. <laughs> yeah, he got a good name out of that, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, well, I guess we can't not mention the fact that they are a red listed species as well and they are massively declining which you wouldn't necessarily think when you come here and see them all at such close quarters but you know Heather you wrote about the kitty wake for Into the Red the BTO book 
I love the line where you said you've, you've already mentioned it that the you know that the, the wildly pelagic birds, yeah. but the spirit of the wild winter ocean flows in their calls right by Greg's. <laughs> <laughs> That's the magic, right there. Yeah. <laughs> it is, though, isn't it? I mean. Uh... If you can pop in for a sausage roll and then come out to see something that's been floating around your polar bears and spend in winter, whole winter, on the ocean and we've welcomed them back, that's, that, that is just like enchantment. Yeah, and like, like you say, coupled with the fact that in a lot of the natural colonies or the secret colonies, yeah. they're not doing great. Um, whereas they don't quite know whether they're doing well in urban areas because they're moving from them to here. Or whether it is because the decline in them and still increasing here, I think there's still a lot of studies going on about that. Well, because yeah. since 2000, they've declined by about 80% well, in the UK, especially on you know Shetland and Orkney Isles. And then when you think that here last year there were about just over a thousand um, apparently occupied nests and then breed breeding birds essentially on the Tyne Bridge alone. It's yeah. something that we do need to protect. There's about just shy two and a half thousand pe- uh, pairs or apparently occupied nests on the entire time. So almost half of it's on the time bridge itself. That's crazy, amazing. And is that number going up? Do you know how, how the numbers are on the bridge? Well, this, this year, Dan Turner's done his surveys and he does seem to think that they're, they're slightly increased. Obviously, he's not finished yet. Um, but the, the first chicks seem to be hatching earlier. So the productivity he's assuming is going to be better mm. so you can just imagine that they might come back year on year but if we do have extra kind of um, nesting platforms along the time instead of them popping up on the buildings which some some folk understandably don't want we can have them further downstream of the time toward the sea yeah. as well not not just in the city and then we can support the overall time population from dan's data that the birds at time off cliffs nest two weeks later than the ones here Right. So there's got to be something in that, and they don't know whether there's sort of more spring storms, which is affecting the breeding. But so these get a two weeks head start than the birds on the coast, which is fascinating stuff. Yeah. yeah, and I think you know I've read that the, the declines are partially or possibly significantly due to sand eel populations and, and their declines. Whoa! <laughs> a couple of crows just came over. Is that a magpie as well? Causing a bit of excitement. <laughs> Did not lie then. So the birds, you know, the birds here on our birds, our our kitten our rigs, kitty rigs. Yeah, yeah, on the bridge. So you know, thinking about sand eels and what they would normally yeah. be feeding on. Where do these guys go and feed? Yes, that's a really good question. Actually, they, these birds still head to sea. Yeah. So Chris Redfern did some tracking data on them, and they were found. Some of them are still going to the farms and the farms deeps to feed. Wow. So they're still going to all the traditional hunting grounds. But they've got that 17-kilometre journey to take ahead. Occasionally, you'll see them early in the season picking bits up on the high tides, but not when they've got chicks. So every day they're going out. Sometimes they do overnight trips, and they'll stay out and come back. But yeah, they've still got to do that 17-kilometre journey, plus some. So they, it's said that they get to the end of the time, and they go either left or right. Yeah. <laughs> Depending <laughs> on how, yeah. So how guess, they feel. Yeah, yeah. behind the feel. Um, but yeah, so they've still got to go to the sea to feed, which is incredible, yeah, really. It's really yeah. cool. So they come back in sort of February, March time. And the main aim of the game is to find the best nest site. So these ones we're looking out now, you can see it gets a lot more dense towards the middle. Yeah. So the older, more mature birds come and try and get nest sites in the centre of the colony because it's safer, like that crow we've just seen in the lesser backpack gulls. So we think of it as like 
the kittiwakes want the townhouses or the terraces yeah and then you come back to the end and you're in the suburbs where not many people want them yeah <laughs> and you can really see that along here yeah, yeah. and then for the first few months they're here they're literally just sitting so they'll sit and guard the nest and then it won't get until about may time and they'll start frantically building nests so they take the mud from the time and they take grass away from the sage and they start building the nests um, but that first initial period, they're just literally sitting and guarding the nest site. Right. Um, so it's the nest site that's incredibly important to them. Um, so they build these lovely cup-shaped nests out of the mud and the grass and all sorts they find in the river. Um, lay generally one to three eggs. Three chicks is really, really good if they get them. And then we have two. Um, and then during that time, it's just the hold in that tiny little territory. And when the chicks hatch, they don't actually recognise the chicks, they only recognise the nest site. So as soon as the chicks fledge at about 40 days old, that's them done. The adults won't come back to feed them. Right. They'll, they'll, if they leave the nest site, that's them done. And uh-huh. they've got to find their way down the time. And uh-huh. you can see birds gathering and gathering. And we'll watch them last year trying to get through or navigate the Millennium Bridge. And they're like, wires come down. And you see them flying at it and they're thinking, oh shit. And they turn around <laughs> and they do it and don't they? And then they either go through the wires or around the side awkwardly over the top. Yeah. They're going too yeah. high to them. No. They're going over. And yeah. under is too close to the water for now. So they just go back to mum for a bit. And <laughs> <laughs> but the ch- chicks are incredible, aren't they? That black and white plumage, aren't yeah, they? They're, lovely. They're, like proper fitting with Newcastle. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Never mind these magpies. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's funny, isn't it? Like, you know, the, the, the Geordies are a proud people. You've already mentioned that, you know, they're, they're proud of their bridge. They're proud of the city. They're proud of the famous hospitality and their nightlife and stuff like that. But I, I do feel like they're proud of their kitty wakes now as well. So that's a, a positive thing. So what do you think, Will? I'm, I'm blown away by the, just the amount of birds there are here. And it's such an iconic image, isn't it? And so when you look at them closely, just how perfect they are, they're, they are different from your regular girl. they this, this this really lovely lemon beak and the pristine chest. I mean, they just they they look after themselves, don't they? They yeah. do. They're, 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 they're good preeners, I reckon. Yeah, they look after. Nice yeah. gentle faces. Don't yes. They? Yeah. yeah. I yeah. think that's they're pretty, pretty birds. I wonder if that's one of the things that sort of people feel differently about them is because they do look softer than a, a typical gull. Their plumage is, you know, cleaner and they're just a a nicer, softer, more cuddly bird. Maybe cuddly's the wrong word, but you know <laughs> but no, what I mean. Yeah, very sweet, yeah. sweet looking, aren't they? Yeah. yeah, when you get them right up close and you see in the eyes, you can feel like that proper wild, like Atlantic Ocean coming back to the city as well. Yeah. Like that bright red ring around yeah, as well. Yeah. Really dark eyes, haven't they? Great, oh, fantastic birds. Thanks so much for uh, telling us all about them. But before we sign off, because we've got more birds to go and see. That's true. So you do, you do kitty wakes and donuts. You do bats and pizzas. And this year, actually, we're doing our first family kitty wakes and donuts for younger kids. Oh, lovely. Where I'll be reading John Miles's Kitty the Toon book to them, having a donut, and then going on a bit of a shorter kitty wake safari. So, oh, nice. I'm well excited for that. <laughs> Brilliant. So, kitty wake week, more kitty wakes and donuts for families, you know, and all your other usual events. Check them out online, Wild Intrigue, and get yourself booked on one of their trips. Dawn Chorus discos and. You know, there's fly catchers. I keep looking at them on, on their Instagram. If you ever check that out, I mean, if you want to see a pied fly catcher really close, climbing. Yeah, they're in Cana, you guys. Yeah, yeah. And you've got osprey cruises up at Kielder. How are the ospreys doing? Brilliant, yeah. So six pair of ospreys this season. But we'll go out on the boat and it's fantastic to see them. Like. We've got our only little, little mini expat after this. We're going to go along and see the peregrines for 
falcons and frazzles. <laughs> sounds, sounds good to me. Can I have that one? <laughs> I was also thinking, you know, you could you could branch out into Middlesbrough and do uh, pigeons and palmos. Yeah, We've well, already thought about. <laughs> <laughs> Very underrated, especially the club-footed ones. I like it. (laughs) Nibbles and nightjars, or you know, Greaves and Greggs. Our nightjar one got a nightjars and churros. Oh, nice churros as in the churros. That's excellent. (laughs) Right. Well, thanks very much, guys. Thank you for having us. So. We've just finished our Kitty Wake expedition with Heather and Kane, which was awesome. And couldn't resist not showing Will the Tyne Peregrines. Got three uh, juveniles. We've got what looks like an adult male on the left. There's two of the little ones sat side by side, looking really cute there. Oh, that, that one on its own's found a little, some scraps of something that it's having a little peck at. But yeah, great, great to see. Yeah, fantastic. They, they all look really healthy, don't they? One just yeah. did a little run along the top there, <laughs> testing its pins out. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they look they look really good, don't they? Yeah. Hopefully this year they'll get away, which hasn't always been the case for these birds over the time. We couldn't do a, this Golden Grenades episode without having at least a no, an, an honourable mention of a peregrine. <laughs> Eight Golden Grenades up there at this moment in time. <laughs> so... Next stop, we're going up the coast now. We're, we're driving up for some fish and chips at Amble, and we are going to meet the godfather of Rosie Turns, Tom Cadwallander. We're going to, yeah, talk all things Rosie Turns and hoping for a little bit of Ida action as well. Looking and forward to it. Maybe even a, <clears throat> a puffin or two. That's where we're headed now. Toodle pip. Bird number three. 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 <laughs> Hello again, so here we are in Amble and Will and I have been joined by local legend, Northumberland cheerleader and BTO representative, tour guide, local radio station host, the Pied Piper of Rosie Turns and now, well recently TV star, Tom Cadwallander. Well hello, that's <laughs> quite a build up that I'm not sure if I can live up to that one <laughs> I'm just thinking now I've called you the Pied Piper of Rosie Turns there but actually that sounds like you're going to leave them off a cliff and maybe I should have Godfather of Rosie Turns oh that sounds nicer yes yeah. I, I can I can do the mafiosa bit and uh, <laughs> no that sounds cool actually I'm happy with that yeah but uh, Rosie Turns man what a species yes wonderful yeah yeah, yeah. and that's, that's why we're primarily here because you have been involved with Rosie Turns for well I started ringing Rosie at Turns in 1991 and I was invited by the RSPB and there was a big issue and the problem was that the population had crashed. It was never big anyway but the population had crashed significantly and we were concerned about why uh, and it was really down to very few pairs and we needed to know something about them so we set about setting up this ringing scheme. And so the rest is history, basically. Yeah, amazing. And it's gone from strength to strength. I mean, we can't overstate the fact that Cogat Island, which we can, we've just approached and we there can see, see there, from yeah. the pier, is the jewel in the crown of sort of uh, rosier terns, isn't it, um, in terms oh, of breeding sites? Oh, yeah. It is the, the premier site in the UK. Uh, in fact, um, in a number of years, it was the only site in the UK for breeding rosier terns. 
And, you know, historically, we had uh, sites in Kemlin Bay, you know, in Anglesey. That was always a good place, but actually they, they disappeared. It's interesting, actually, rosy terns, they disappeared from all sorts of places. The type specimen of rosy tern was taken in 1812 by Dr. MacDougall right. on, on the <laughs> Isle of Cymru in the, in the Forth of Clyde. Right. And they, they, they disappeared from there really quite quickly after that. Um, but anyway, that was the, that's where it was, they were taken from. And they nested in uh, on, on the Isles of the... In the Forth of Firth, and they've nested on the Farne Islands, and so there's a few places have nested, but all those places disappeared, and kind of all just focused down onto onto Coquit. But for what I gather, just recently there's been uh, a little bit of a, a, an upsurge in one or two other places where the population is coming away. But the real in the North Atlantic, the real place where these birds are uh, are found is is, is uh, Rockerbill uh, off Ireland, yeah. and there's two thousand pairs. That's kind of the big sink, the reservoir, yeah. if you like. And that's where we were getting lots of our birds from. And they were coming here. We, we knew this because of the rigging scheme. You know, we're putting on these, these legible rings, which were le- read in the colony. And as the, as the population on Cokard grew, the idea was that we perhaps became more self-sustaining, or at least this colony became more self-sustaining. Hasn't got there yet. We still have this input from uh, rockabill birds. And there's one or two colonies in northern France and in the Azores and places like that. But it's yeah. interesting how the whole thing kind of hangs together. Yeah. But actually, in terms of the UK, Cogod Island is the business. RSPB Cogod Island, is, it's just an amazing place. And it's not just me. It's a, there's a great team of people yeah. Um, yeah. who are involved in doing stuff we, we monitor. And, uh, and in the early days, uh, when I was ringing, uh, started to ring, uh, we, the, the birds would nest right around the island uh, and the, the, the resident warden would spend their days just trying to plot where these birds were because they were, they were little, little scrapes they would nest in and always kind of adjacent to a, um, a, a puffin burrow. More about that in a minute. But actually, they would, so they would right around the island. So we'd spend our time, time just trudging around the, the island, finding these young birds and uh, getting rings on them as if you could. And there was about 20 pairs at that time in the early yeah. 90s. Um, and Only that was 20. really yeah. yeah rock bottom man it was, it was just amazing uh, we had a few years ringing like that and the birds were around the, around the, uh, the island and then we had this idea that we should be using nest boxes hang on a minute these are seabirds yeah <laughs> yeah nest boxes are for blue tits and pine flycatchers <laughs> but no these are special nest boxes yeah so what do they look like what kind of thing are they they're, they're uh, wooden yeah. or, or actually these days they're, they're made of recycled plastic so they're, they're really quite uh, oh, weather good. resistant so they're, they're wedge shaped and they're about um, ooh, 18 inches long by about sort of uh, 10 inches wide and it has a little uh, doorway uh, the, the, uh, I mentioned before there that they like to nest near uh, puffin burrows and what they do the chicks yeah, why? Why, why, yeah. why yeah I'm going to ask <laughs> that question why yeah, why thank you well yeah it's good I was wanting someone to do that so I should tell you and because once, once they get a couple of couple of days old they're kind of they're quite mobile mm. and they like to be in sheltered spots so they'll get into the mouth of a, uh, of a puffin burrow and there's a little bit, a bit of overhang and it's, it's a bit of mm. vegetation and stuff so they're quite safe or at least they think they're up, safe upgrade maybe absolutely yeah. so, so they like we, we knew they liked to be in these uh, and these little burrows so we, we nicked that idea actually we nicked the idea for the Americans because they had it first so right. we brought it over and uh, so sure enough get in there oh they, they love them and actually <laughs> over the years uh, we've, we've got all these rosier turns concentrated in one area now and there's three terraces where 
through our research, we've discovered that they, they don't like to be disturbed. That's one of the biggest factors in, in their decline. So that's why the, the island, well, there's so many birds nesting on the island anyway, we, could, we couldn't really allow landing. But the fact that they've got disturbance, um, we're trying to re reduce this disturbance, even us who are, who are going to monitor, we only go into the colony once a week yeah. uh, to, to reduce that. And that's including ringing. Um, and so, yes, to reduce the, the, the whole disturbance thing. And that's made a difference. And I think from 1991, where we had 20 pairs, to last year, 2022, we, we had 150 pairs. Oh, lovely. So the, the success... Success story, that's what amazing. we want to hear about, isn't it? Absolutely yeah. amazing. But, you know, you go, going back to the times when they, these birds were, were nesting in there and in the, out in the wild, if you like, um, they used to run to the entrance of these puffin burrows. We, we were going trying to find the chicks, the tiny things, two days old, and they, they would be in these, these puffin burrows. And you'd... Oh, oh it's... <laughs> It's running. It's gone in. It's gone, we're trying to find these to put rings on them. So you put puffins are the most disgusting things. Have you? Ever, they are. They really. They've got no kind of sanitary habits. You know, they really aren't savoury. So you get the burrow and you'd put your arm down to try and find this this wee chick of about sort of three inches high. Mm. Puffin burrows are quite deep. Mm. It's, a, it's a full arm length. Yeah. And you put your arm in there, and the first thing you'll hit sort of halfway is the latrine. I was going to say. Oh, oh. oh no, it's pretty disgusting. I you can, can tell beat you. this, but a bit of a shithole, you might say. <laughs> yes, you put your arm in there, and then you get a bit further in, and then, then you get all the kind of the, the decaying uh, fish remains that sort of scrub. like a moisturiser. Absolutely. My skin's never been as good. You have very soft-looking hands. That's right, yes, that's right. Yes. Fishy. <laughs> but, but yes, that, that, was, that was fun. I'm pleased we don't do that anymore. Oh, <laughs> but yes. monkey. Oh, it was, it's certainly monkey. But yeah. 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 It's, it's it's a wonderful that, that kind of a symbiotic relationship between puffins and, and roseate terns. Yeah. And these days we have uh, similarly the, the uh, roseate tern colony is really next to um, a common tern colony. So and these the common terns are quite deciferous if you if yeah. you like, and they really are, and and they'll hammer you. But they they will actually protect. They add that extra level of protection because the other thing that the boxes were doing. They added a level of protection against predation because there are large gulls nesting out there, yeah. but also... They're, they're on the island too, like lesser correct, yeah. blackbacks. Correct, Lesser blackbacks yeah. and herring gulls. But also they will, on the sea, you know, the weather can change just so quickly. Yeah. And in July, there's invariably a week where it's just going to high down with rain yeah. and it's going to be northerly and it's going to be pretty bad. Uh -huh. So yes, they get in the boxes and... There they are, they're protected. All the other birds are getting sort of soaked by the whatever it is, these storms going through, and these rosy turns sitting there in their boxing. <laughs> I'm cool, man, I'm, right. I'm sorted. Yeah, yeah. Actually, there's some interesting work on in a fawn. When you go on in the fawn, you, you, you dive bomb by these birds, mm, yeah. and these birds nesting by the, by the pathways and right and where the, the kind of right around the chapel and that sort of area. And you think, well, they're never going to get off there, but actually, the productivity is higher in those areas because they have the humans to act as their kind of protectors oh, yeah. I see, yeah. so they keep the big gull the big gulls are the uh, are the real nuisances really they'll, they'll, they'll just one flick of the head and the, the, the chick is just gone disappeared gulp yeah mm. just disappeared yeah yeah and it's, it's quite interesting to watch, actually. We can be dispassionate about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's hard. Oh, yeah. I bet, I yeah. bet. Especially when you ring them when you're your babies. Oh, well, yeah. let's wander over there and see if we get the scope out and see if we can... Oh, yeah. We haven't been able to, sadly, get on a, a puffin cruise to go around the island because the, the tide timings aren't right and I didn't check before we arranged <laughs> to meet Tom. But we're going to see if we can try and scope one from here, which I think is a long shot, but we'll give it a go. 
They're quite distinctive, you know. Yeah. yeah, they're quite distinctive. Aren't? They you fly know, pe- differently, don't they? Yeah, I think. Just have on your mind, just a small sandwich turn. Yeah. Because yeah. their grey back is a silver grey, as opposed to, you know, the common turns and Arctic turns. Their backs are kind of just, it's, proper, it's a grey-grey. The sandwich turn has an all black bill with a yellow tip, yeah. whereas the rosier turn has a red base to it and uh, it's black. But they're a little bit, they're a little bit bigger than the commons and arctics. So and they're, they're a little bit bigger. Yeah, okay, yeah, just marginally bigger. And they have longer tail streamers. That's right. They're uh, a little bit more elegant, aren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Here's Into a sandwich the, coming over our heads now. Oh, yes. Oh, I see the yellow tip quite yeah, nicely there. Lovely, yeah. yeah. So, Tom, I've got my scope set up. All right. Get okay. us on a rosy turn. Oh, my goodness. There's no pressure there. <laughs> Eight miles away. Well, I can see the island quite nicely. There's an awful lot of heat haze. Yeah, it's a beautiful day here. If you look through there. Yeah, I can see the, the observatory and. Yeah. In front of that, you'll see some nest boxes. And uh, on those nest boxes, you'll see the odd bird floating around there. It's, it's birding with some imagination. Yeah. But you know, that, that's, that's them, that's where they are. Yes, I can see them. So yeah. those distant white birds, some of them are yeah. rosy turns. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's, that's in, inside I knowledge that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know where they are. There are fewer this year than there were last year. We, we got really hammered by avian influenza yeah, last year. Yeah, it, was, yeah, it was absolutely dreadful. And I was saying we, we had um, 150 pairs, but that, that was decimated by, the, oh, uh, yeah, by yeah. flu. And, and rosy turn wasn't the only species to be hit. Common turn numbers on the Kogut. Uh, common turn numbers are about two thirds of what they were last year. Sandwich turns have have gone down by half, and the rosy turns, from what we know, have gone down by about half as well. Right. From so the, from the flu, from the flu, yeah, yeah. and it's just not the birds coming back into the system. Yeah. Um, but you know, um, with the best will, and the encouraging thing, and you've probably seen it, that the some birds are re- actually recovering from from bird flu. And you've read about the, the black-eyed gannets. I mm-hmm. just saw that on Springwatch the other day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, there was um, a little bit before that, there was some quite nice work has uh, been published, and I think it was published on, on Bird Guides or somewhere like that, mm. uh, some research work, and it talks about these black-eyed gannets. They're the ones that recovered from bird flu, yeah. which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if, that, if that can happen... But, it, but, you know, watching these birds on the, on the island and their behaviour is slightly different this year than what it has been like previous years... Last year, for example, the, there was an area where the uh, sandwich terns nested traditionally. This year, they're now in a different place. Right. They've moved. Uh-huh. And it's... it's like you know, they could sense something wasn't so well, good around here. Well, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You, it's, it's, it's something's like, happening here. It's like someone sneezing on the train and moving a few seats up, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So actually, I think I'll just yeah. leave this. Or, yeah. uh, <laughs> absolutely. Well, actually, I associate this place with uh, when... <laughs> Mum and Dad died. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah. Some, I'm off. Something yeah. cheerful like that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's um, it's interesting that that change of behaviour. It's quite yeah. fun. So so that's part of the the monitoring process. But of course, because the rosy turn population is so low, it's it's quite vulnerable. Of course, as you know. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but interestingly, you know, you you know a bit about seabird ecology. The fairly long-lived bird seabirds. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know these birds will live 25, 30 years. So they'll take the odd year out of, out of breeding. They all do that. And so, you know, they, that, that doesn't really matter too much. Um, because if they've, if, they've laid, if they've reared one or two chicks, they've kind of done the, their the job, as it were, in terms of uh, maintaining the population. Young birds leaving the site will go down to Africa. That's where the, uh, the winter, the winter in Ghana, and that kind of... Uh, that, that, I, I like to describe the armpit of West Africa, <laughs> and it's the Gulf of Guinea, of course. Yeah. And the uh, young birds will... Um, they will stay down there for their first first year, and they will not come back. 
the so, second calendar year. Correct, yes. Right. It's so, amazing, is it two, two years and they've done that journey once, but you know, they, they'll remember. And, that's that's yeah. right, yeah. It's interesting, actually. In the past few years, we've noticed there's a little bit of a, uh, a funny migration going on because uh, when they leave here, uh, they don't head straight south. They will head north again. They will head north and they'll continue north. And some of our birds here have been recorded in uh, Montrose Basin, for example, oh, really? or Broth and that sort of area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they'll go north a bit, then they'll head south. Yeah. And, uh, but sometimes we think, actually, they will cross, will cross land as well. We, we, we don't know enough about that. And you kind of think, well, what else do you know? And actually, the, um, back in the early days, there was a real big problem with young Ghanaian lads. When these birds were wintering down there, they would collect them, if you yeah. like. And they, that was a big, big bit of pressure on the, on the wintering population. The RSPB, they hired Ghanaian educators to go out into schools and, and try to turn the corner. And that's exactly what's happened. No pun intended. No, it is right. <laughs> exactly. I missed that one. I'm not saying it doesn't happen anymore, but it yeah. happens. It's greatly yeah, reduced. Gannets. Oh. Gannets moment. Oh, yeah, man. Just zooming over. One of my favourite birds. Oh, no. I've talked about that before on the podcast, but yeah, yeah no, I just... Yeah. Top five for me, Gannets. Absolutely. Love I, them. I can understand that. They're, they're great. There was um, a number of years ago that somebody reported this gannet on the beach. And of course, I had to go and have a look and see what I can do. And yeah, maybe, maybe I was incredibly naive, although I was used to handling birds. And this gannet, you know, the bills are huge. So I went down to pick this, this gannet up to, to try and help it. And well, it didn't really want that. And uh, it started moving, its, waving its head around. And this bill caught me in the forehead oh. and right down through my, my forehead and onto my nose and split wide open. Oh, no. Blood pouring down here. Fortunately, I, I wear specs. I can still see the yeah. scar. Uh, that's yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, that's not my hairline. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, and it, and, so when handling a gannet, yeah, wear oh. shades and yes. also just don't go Helmet. Yeah. close. Yeah, that's right. Use, Use the utmost care. Respond I'm not surprised right when you look at the beak on a gannet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love the, the fact that it was, it was mentioned, I think, in the, into the Red Book that because they're so long-lived and because they make this journey to Africa there and back, over 25 years, they've flown the equivalent of flying to the moon. Wow. It's amazing, isn't it? 375,000 yeah. kilometres. And, you know, and rosy terns aren't, aren't the big migrants, are they? No. You've got to compare that with Arctic terns. Arctic terns. Arctic. Oh, the big boy, isn't it? Yeah. 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 They're, they're the moon they're, and back. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it, the Arctic terns are fantastic. They go right down into Australia and down up the ice sheets south yeah. from there, but then working their way back. Yeah. These Arctic terns, you know, they've got shorter legs than the common terns. Right. And uh, the reason why they have shorter legs is it enables them to stand on ice sheets oh. without reducing their body temperature too much. Is that right? And it just kind of coincides with the idea. We know, we know they go and stand on the ice sheets of Antarctica before yeah. they head back north again. That's the, kind of their normal cycle. Yeah. So that's why they have shorter legs. And is it That'd right? Be a good animation, actually. Just yeah. Like, <laughs> just like, is it a common turn? No. <laughs> It's yeah, like little, little legs. Yeah, yeah. Should do. And is it right? The rosy terns have slightly longer legs. They have, yes, yeah. and they're, they're slightly taller. And in the young birds, the the pulley, they've got black legs, whereas the commons and arctics have uh, sort of flesh-coloured or reddish-coloured. Sandwich terns, which are much bigger, have black legs as well. But the adult rosy terns have red legs, so it's there's that change. So you, you go into the colony and you kind of see a lot of lot of chicks there. You think, I wonder what they are. Of course, you, with and your eye, quite you, quick. yeah, you, can, yeah, you yeah. Can, you can you can pick them out. I can pick yeah. them out. But you just pick one up, and you can see the colour of its legs. If it's yeah. black, if they're black, they're going to be rosy tones. So there you go. I wish <laughs> I could pick up a few willow warblers and chiff chaffs oh, to do that. Oh yeah, <laughs> just, oh, yes. just grab them and go. Oh, yeah. that's what you are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're not singing. That's right. For the connoisseur's turn, I would say. Little so, bit pinky blush on the nails. Oh, yeah. Blush, yeah. So yeah, yeah. 
Oh yes, to see that actually, and there will, sometimes some individuals will hold that pinky blush quite a while. Yeah. Uh, others, it just goes very quickly. You get in the colony, and this I've got, I've got goosebumps now actually just trying to tell you this. <laughs> and uh, you go in the colony, you can sit there, and you're within. You're just checking the boxes, see what's in there. If there's a bird to be ringed, you'll ring it, and you just turn round and a meter or so away and they'll be back on their boxes. They'll, we have stones on top of the boxes to stop them from blowing away. And uh, they'll, they'll land on these stones. And there you are, sort of a metre away from the rarest breeding seabird that we have in the UK. Yeah, it's madness. And I tell it? you, and I've done this for, well, since 1991, and every year I'm just blown away by yeah. it. I've never become complacent. I still no. get that thrill. Yeah. Now, sure, I'm telling you about <laughs> this. I, I can feel the hair on the back yeah. of my neck. It's, because it's I lovely when, you, when something comes back. You know where it's been as well. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it comes back and it's by your feet. And you oh. think... Hello, little fellow. You know, absolutely, yeah. but but you know, it's it's that it's that privilege, will mm. that you're involved in such a scheme like yeah, this, yeah. and it's just incredible, actually. Yeah. Uh, and yes, you, the majority of these birds that we see, I've ringed something just over two thousand rosier terns. And there was a great <laughs> story that we used in the in the Red Book kit. If you'll remember it, yeah, about yeah. the the, the rosier tern that turned up in Warsaw. It was an inland reservoir, and the name escapes me. Even if I didn't escape me, I could never pronounce it. This bird was photographed inland Poland, and it was the only, it was the first record for inland Poland, only the second record for for Poland, full stop. And it had a ring on it, and that ring number was then shared across the internet. Somebody picked it up, and then got in touch with me, and I found out exactly who the, who that bird was. Yeah. And I had ringed it wow. the, uh, two years <laughs> before great, that. That's great, isn't it? Yeah. And that. And it was one of my old pals. Yeah. <laughs> it was brilliant. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's that sort of story. And that whole, that cohort, it was from, it was the, the 2010 cohort. And the Irish lads on Rockerbill, they had a couple of strange kind of turnings up of, of birds in Switzerland, of all places, and inland Spain as well. So something was going on in, in, that, in that year. Yeah. But amazing. Absolutely amazing. amazing. Yeah. But, you know, they, that, is, that is kind of... You know, you, you you do this because that's what gets you going, isn't it? Absolutely. That kind of thing. Oh my! The fact you can trace it back. Oh, you're so right. Well, you know, you you do it for the yeah, this sort of work for conservation purposes and stuff. But actually, that 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 works on a human level for me. Yeah. That that does me think. Ah, oh, I feel brilliant. Well, yeah. that's why the, you're the ideal man to be the godfather of Rosie Tunes because of your <laughs> your passion and enthusiasm <laughs> is just not so just, not just that. obvious. The, it's just the ideal man. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh. Nancy Moyer would say so. Oh, oh, we must talk very briefly about that, Tom, oh, yes. and your uh, yeah, yeah, yes. your your fame on Jim and Nancy Moyer's painting birds. Oh yes, program. Oh, that was so much fun. It looked like you were having a ball. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I can't say that I wasn't in the bushes with my binoculars. <laughs> growling at you because I didn't get an invite but uh, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah no brilliant that looked loads of fun it was it was it's quite interesting how that whole thing kind of transpired two months before that I had been with Robson Green the other kind of a, a local kind of celebrity if you like I'd been taking him, him out bird watching so I thought oh my my day in the sun is going to be that was going to be it then all of a sudden I get contacted about uh, these uh, producers TV producers they're looking to tell me they told me about this program so, uh, this this person wanted to paint curlews in Northumberland so then I discovered who it was oh fantastic I did a, a little audition then it came to the actual shooting so yeah the two best places to see curlews in Northumberland during kind of autumn winter time is the Allen Estuary my home patch my local patch and and Lindisfarne and we, we duly met on the Allen Estuary where the day before I knew there was two to three hundred curlews in the field just where we we're going to meet this is this is perfect <laughs> That afternoon when we met, it was blowing a hoolie. 
and everybody was had their their their, uh, their heads down, so we didn't see we didn't see a curlew on the on the first afternoon. But anyway, we went to Lindisfarne, and I know a bit about Lindisfarne as well. So I acted as their kind of historic guide as well as their bird guide, yeah. which is great fun. Yeah, it was, and it was working with them. It was great fun, uh, and I was quite thrilled actually because yeah. Jim gave me an A2 print of of curlews flying over this kind of diffused background. And he, he annotated it, especially for me. Sort of, yeah, that for Tom. Yeah. The, thanks for showing us your killers. This is this is mine. This yeah. is, thank you. So oh, that was cool. Great. So it was a great session. That I yeah. loved it. I loved it. Really, yeah. really good. So, bird three of your Northumbrian Odyssey, Will. Yeah, Rosie well, turns. What do you reckon? Well pleased. Yeah. And then fabulous introduction. And uh, it's just great to be in the spot where we can see him. Although distantly, that's their the holy island. Well, it's not the holy island, not, quite, not yeah, holy but island. it is their island. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah it's, the, the holy island of Cokid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Well, I think we're going to head up the coast to your your patch. Okay. Now, yeah, yeah. And uh, we're going to talk about another iconic Northumberland bird, but we'll save this surprise for when we get there. <laughs> oh, let's <laughs> go. <laughs> <laughs> But that, folks, is going to have to remain to be continued because we've simply got far too much of this good birdie stuff to cram into one episode. So, have a comfort break, buy an overpriced tub of ice cream with a spoon in the lid from the lady in the aisle and rest your ears. Then, when you're refreshed, come back later for part two, side B or the second half or whatever you want to call it, of our Northumbrian shenanigans. Until then, toodle pip.